Talk, the podcast all about nouns. This is a show where we interview members of the DAO and project builders in the ecosystem. I'm your host, CDT, and today I'm chatting with VapeApe, one of the founders of nouns. I've always been fascinated by nouns and especially the technical people behind it. It was great to sit down and get some answers to long-standing questions I had about what it was like creating the project. We also get into his crypto journey that started all the way back in college, as well as the story of the iconic punk behind his name. And he even gives me an MEV crash course. But don't worry, we definitely get into nouns too. As always, you can find Noun and Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out on Twitter at CDT underscore ETH. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, Vape, good morning. Thanks for being here. Morning, Christian. Hey, thanks for having me. So we know you are a dev. We know that you are one of the founder of Nouns, but we don't know much more about you. So I'm excited to dig into that a little bit, get into your crypto journey, and then get your thoughts on Nouns. Absolutely. Let's do it. So let's go ahead and take it as far back as you want. I, I, I'd love to hear about your non-crypto background. I think you've been in the crypto space for a long time, but what can you tell me about either your, your past, your job trajectory, your interests, just kind of everything leading up to crypto? Yeah, totally. So I guess, you know, going back to, I guess, more childhood. I mean, I was, I was very internet native, so I grew up on AIM and IRC and, you know, playing uh, video games and, and things like that. And so that's where, I guess, my sort of computer interest um, initially sparked. Um, played, you know, sports in high school. is pretty typical, uh, I guess, like Midwest uh, American kid. Um, and then in sort of, I guess, at the end of high school, um, I had this option to take either um, sort of like another math class or there's a, a new class they're offering those microcomputer projects. Um, so I ended up taking microcomputer projects, which was uh, pick chip programming with assembly. Um, and so I hadn't done, you know, much of any programming before. So my first kind of foray into to programming computer science was this class programming assembly on these pick chips. Um, and it came just really natural to me. And so I ended up going into computer science in college um, and ended up doing sort of an undergrad and a master's in, in computer science um, while I was in college. Oh, wow. During your master's, did you have a concentration of any sort or just computer science in general? Yeah. So, so my focus was actually distributed systems and, and big data was kind of the hot topic at the time. Um, and so that was where my initial interest in Bitcoin came in. Um, cause while I was doing my undergrad, you know, like Mount Gox and, and some of those events were happening. Um, but I was really interested in Bitcoin from more of the computer science perspective. Uh, a professor had actually initially showed it to me, um, and described, you know, the, the, the Byzantine generals problem. And so my, my initial interest in it was like purely academic. Um, and I, I thought, you know, something we, we kind of described it as like, there's this honeypot, you know, there's kind of this like 
bounty for hacking Bitcoin, which is the total market cap of Bitcoin. And so I kind of watched it from afar for a long time, um, maybe like a year, just to see, you know, what if somebody would end up sort of breaking it. Um, and so I kind of watched the whole Mt. Gox event happen at arm's length. And on the under, other end of that, I realized that, you know, it wasn't Bitcoin that broke. It was sort of this, this individual exchange that, that had been compromised. Um, and then I got really interested in it after that. And so that's when I went, you know, really deep down the rabbit hole. Um, now it's kind of on the tail end of my undergrad. And so then all my grad school work was basically focused on Bitcoin after that. Um, and so I did, you know, like my capstone projects and, and some of my like thesis work was, was all around various components of, of Bitcoin, whether it was from like the hardware layer to um, sort of the, you know, peer to peer network and, and things in between. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, had like kind of a slow start into it, but then it's been kind of down the rabbit hole ever since. Were you, always going to have done a master's or did this professor exposing you to that kickstart this? Yeah, I think I ended up falling into the the master's mostly because I was kind of undecided with what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, so I was on the you know tail end of this, this bachelor's degree in computer science. And, you know, most kids, you know, in my graduating class, they, they would go to kind of these big enterprise companies like HP or, or, or something like that. And I knew I didn't want to do that. Like that just sounded, you know, incredibly boring to me to get sort of a big enterprise desk job somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess to kind of, um, you know, I was looking through Bitcoin um, through a, a lens of like being really excited about Silicon Valley in, in the startup game. Um, and so I just was, I guess, undecided with if I wanted to start a company or join a company, but I knew I didn't want to do big enterprise um you know, software development. Um, and I had some, some basically internships uh, in and around my college campus that kind of offered full ride master's programs. And so I ended up sort of signing on to one of those. So it sounds like a lot of how you were interfacing with this at the time came from a very academic point of view, your thesis, writing papers, getting a master's. Were you hacking on anything or, or actually coding, working on stuff during this time? Yeah, I would say kind of nights and weekends, like fun project type stuff. So um, participated in some hackathons, you know, back when I guess like crypto hackathons were, were fairly rare. Um, and I had kind of a small group of other uh, you know, software developers that I met through various meetup groups in the, the city that I lived in. And so we would just do kind of you know, sort of small project work. Like I think we built a portfolio tracking app. And as soon as you start getting into the crypto, you know, the trading side becomes very attractive. And so you try your hand at coding some, you know, pretty dumb trading bots and things like that, thinking you can sort of be smarter than the market. What programming languages do you like to spend most of your time in? Yeah, I'd say these days, um, you can if you look at the nouns, monorepo, it's all you know TypeScript, and so that's definitely been kind of the bread and butter for the last few years, um, especially early on in in Ethereum. That's where you know all of the sort of dev tooling, dev support was was mostly JavaScript and TypeScript, and so I, I picked that up uh, mostly. But I, I've worked professionally in uh, Python, Ruby, Java over my career mainly. 
Um, so most like OOP languages, um, you know, I can, I can pick up and contribute pretty easily. Yeah. Can you give me maybe a, a short timeline of the work you did post masters? Yeah. So I actually went and, uh, joined a data science team at a, I guess a, a popular crypto exchange. And there's, there's only, you know, a few back in the day. Um, but yeah, on the other side of my master's, I knew I wanted to, to work in crypto. Um, and so I, I went and joined one of the the few uh, crypto companies that were in the Bay Area at the time. It sounds like there was no, maybe one moment that kind of led you into crypto. It seems like you were kind of always being slowly and slowly, you know, more immersed in it from kind of the beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was always just so interesting, and 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 you could play out, you know, a lot of the implications of if this technology is successful. You know, even back in 2012, 2013, when I started kind of piquing my interest, um, and you know that reality, whether whether it's realized or not, is, is very exciting one to to move towards, and it really felt like there was you know a new new kind of tech moment, like the you know, the the internet moment um, for, for our generation, maybe. And, and so I think that opportunity wasn't lost on me. And as soon as I gained conviction around the tech, you know, being a, a real thing, um, it's just, it's been a complete passion ever since. Was there m- maybe a more specific moment uh, where you, you uh, self-described gaining conviction? Yeah, I think really watching uh, the Mt. Gox event yeah. happen from from afar, I think coming out on the other side of that, I think I bought some of my first Bitcoin as the price was falling after that event. Um, so I had enough conviction at that point to at least kind of put my money where my mouth was. Um, and, and actually, you know, with the, the few dollars that I did have, buy, buy a little bit of Bitcoin then. Yeah. So... So then moving forward, what do the next five or so years look like within crypto now? Yes. So, so I worked at this company in the Bay Area for you know a couple of years. And then um, I left, I guess it would be kind of mid to late 2017. And I've been working in and around Ethereum full time ever since then. And so worked on, yeah, kind of either worked on or advised various projects, you know, particularly in the DeFi and index space, because that was kind of all there was back then. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that, you know, before it was called DeFi and, and before Texas had any kind of meaningful volume, it, it was really just, you know, there's dozens of us sort of building in and around Ethereum. Um, and so it's was really fun, I guess, watching, you know, the space grow to what it is today when you could, you know, literally name everybody in 2017 that was working on this stuff. Um, and so just kind of, yeah, I've been bouncing around, you know, various projects working for, for various companies, um, doing, uh, yeah, I mean, mostly development or, or sort of engineering management work on some of this um, kind of leading DeFi tech. Yeah. And then when did kind of things switch over to Ethereum? When did you first get exposed to that? Yeah, it would have been probably mid 2016. And and it was, I'd heard the, heard the name, you know, before, and it was familiar with the project. Um, But trading in 2014 and 2015, you get exposed to a lot of kind of alt, altcoin scams, you know? And so I was very skeptical of, 
anything else that wasn't Bitcoin at the time. Um, after you get burned from a few scams, you kind of you know reassess uh, what piece of tech is is most important. And at that time for me, it was Bitcoin. And so I didn't pay a lot of credence to Ethereum like very early on. Um, and it took, you know, maybe some some friends and colleagues kind of, uh, you know, pushing on some of my assumptions there that got me more and more interested in it. Um, and then, you know, once you realize, well, you can build like these very flexible smart contracts to do, you know, effectively anything at the computation layer, um, that's when it was another kind of, you know, brain expanding moment. Like the first one was, was around Bitcoin and, and what the, the potential was there. I think the second was realizing, you know, what, a what could be capable with Ethereum, um, that Bitcoin couldn't do. And so that was, you know, an another moment where I think I got kind of sucked further down the, the rabbit hole in, in maybe a slightly different form, um, being Ethereum. Do you remember when you first started learning Solidity or your first smart contract you wrote? Let's see. Um, I did. Yeah. I mean, before, so I guess it would probably been, yeah, same early to mid 2017, um, just kind of hacking around with stuff. And so uh, I built some sort of NFT like project, funny enough, um, sort of before any of the standards were, um, were created and, you know, didn't market it or anything like that, but, but, we would just build sort of like kind of dumb contracts. Like I remember one we had was this chicken, uh, this chicken contract where you would put some ETH in and then the first person to withdraw would get less ETH out than, the, than like the next person. And so like the, the last person to get the, the most ETH, you know? So it was like this just kind of silly uh, chicken contract. Um, There's a lot of just kind of funny, you know, uh, nobody really knew what the, what the build at the time. Um, you know, DEXs were, I think, an obvious one that were going to be built. Um, and Ether Delta was kind of the the main DEX there at the time. Um, but it was just like a lot of experimentation. Nobody was like really building anything to, to make a bunch of money or, or there was, you know, not enough users to really justify um, very large sort of venture-backed company. So it was just a lot of experimentation at the time. So a couple of questions before we get deeper into the history of Vape Ape and then later on into Nouns. I guess I hadn't realized how much of your life and your past was so deeply entrenched in crypto from like the very beginning. Do you have any non-crypto topics or things that you spend a lot of time thinking about, or is your entire life just crypto 24 seven? Yeah, it is very crypto centered. And I would say like my profession and my hobbies, even, I mean, I would have never created nouns if I was just sort of a, a nine to five or you know, uh, put my time in and then go do something else. Um, when I first started working on nouns, it was very much a nights and weekends type project. Um, but, you know, I, I guess like to some extent, current events are, are of interest, especially with, you know, the the pandemic and everything happening and trying to keep up with all that stuff. But um, if I'm not sort of in front of the computer, I'm fairly checked out. And so, you know, I'm either, you know, out, hiking with my wife and, and dog, or, or I have, we have some like kind of board game nights with friends. Um, a lot of my reading is focused around, um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty interested in like trading and, and sort of the, the economy most recently with everything happening there. Um, so I'd say my, my focus is probably mostly on, you know, things that are, that are happening 
in the headlines, but I, I try to find sort of more nuanced sources than, than, you know, what's going on on mainstream media. Yeah. Speaking of reading, um, do you have any favorite books you like either, you know, maybe some from the past and that have stuck with you and then some maybe more current that you're enjoying? Yeah. Yeah. I like this question. Um, so yeah, I'd say one from the past, which, which I didn't actually have on my list uh, initially, but um, I think one of the few books I've read twice is Ender's Game as a, as a child. Um, and so I've always had kind of the sci-fi, you know, uh, a focus, been very interesting, I guess, in, in the future and in, in technology. Um, and then two more recent books, and, and these are sort of various uh, varying degrees of, of difficulty. Um, one is Central Banking 101 by Joseph Wang. I just think um, the central bank is an increasingly um, sort of important mechanic in our economy and having, you know, some sort of base knowledge in it is, is beneficial for everyone. And then the other one I pulled that, that I've been reading recently is uh, Rene Girard's Mimetic Theory, um, which, is, which is a much denser book, um, but it has some very like, interesting concepts for uh, crypto generally, but, but NFTs especially seem to, to, you know, fit some of these concepts quite well. I haven't I haven't heard of that one before. Can you maybe say say a little bit more about it? Yeah, so um let's see, I guess Gerard was this, you know, economist and he has this whole theory around um sort of asset or price reflexivity, so how asset prices uh I guess um respond to various uh, factors that may not be solely economic or, or explainable. Um, so like, you know, it sort of introduces human psychology into the, into the equation a little bit. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a interesting, I guess, like, uh, you know, map over crypto and, and NFTs in, in that regard, uh, tr trying to like get at sort of the, the human nature of uh, why prices do the things that they do. Yeah. Side question: Do you have a favorite board game now that you mentioned it? Oh, Settlers of Catan, I think okay. is, is a is a massive classic. classic. Yeah, yeah, nice. I have some friends who are board game creators. I can tell you about after this. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. Played a bunch in college, and then um, I've slowly sucked all of my sort of adult friends into into playing with me over the years. That's awesome. Okay, moving on. So you you've been around for forever. And to contrast, I have not been around for forever. I actually just hit one year in the space, which pretty much coincides with finding out about nouns. It all kind of came together at the same time. So I have a maybe a more broader question that could be useful to people like me or even people who are are, are newer than me specifically geared towards developers finding out about crypto and being really interested from a technical perspective or wanting to switch from web two to web three, as it were. I remember when I first started, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant and you don't know what to focus on and you don't know what to do. You do everything, you don't sleep, you, you take everything in. Uh, in your opinion, what are maybe some of the more highest value things for, for new devs to do or, or, or focus on when like entering the space? Yeah, I think looking at existing projects and um, really, I think looking at sort of the, the 
development stack and um, processes of other projects is is helpful. Um, and yeah, I can sort of elaborate around. Um, I think a lot of Web two you know developers that come in. Um, if you think about sort of the, I guess like lack of a better term, like the web to stack is around, you know, centralized DB, some sort of back end with an API and then a front end. Um, when you move into web three and and this this paradigm is shifting rapidly, um, you know, you, you really have to either supplement or get rid of the centralized backend and, and use the, the the blockchain itself as your backend in some instances. Um, and then, you know, having a lot of this um, sort of like user account, email, account recovery flow. Also, you can kind of do away with a lot of that for this, you know, sign in with Ethereum type, um, you know, mechanism. Um, and so there's some, I think, some, some distinct differences in, in certain parts of the stack. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you're writing in, in the same language and you're, you know, getting and, and writing data and, and you have to sort of deal with the async nature of, of writing to to a blockchain and getting that data included. Um, and so, yeah, I think just consuming what the work that others have done is probably the best shortcut to, um, you know, finding your sort of flow and in, in app development or, or adapt development. Yeah. On on one hand, there's so much to kind of take in, technically speaking, and, you know, that's where, at least for someone like me, I've tried to focus a lot of my time, uh, but there's almost so much context you're missing from the state of things. You know, crypto is such this rich ecosystem with a rich history, and uh, I feel like I'm doing an okay job keeping up with things from day to day, but there's, feels like, 10 years of, of context and, and, and history to catch up on. Yeah, it, it is very, it. totally. No, it's, it's very, very hard because there's, there is a lot of nuanced history and it's not well documented at all. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, really there's, there's no substitute for just, you know, putting the time in and I mean, you've obviously progressed like incredibly over, over a year. Um, I, I don't think near, nearly as many people are as sort of dedicated as, as you are to this, but um, it, it does take a lot of, you know, heads down um, extended, you know, work to, to be good in this space. And I mean, you have to also be willing to put up some, I think some capital to, to try things. Like there's so much, so many applications and other blockchains and things to try. Um, inevitably, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll lose some of that money. And I think that's kind of like a, a tuition in, in some sense of mm. sort of learning in the, in the space. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to find sort of the sharp edges around, around the, you know, the space itself. And, and, and there's no, I don't think there's any shortcut to that. Yeah. I really like that framing. I'd heard that before, uh, kind of trying things, sinking capital and it being basically your tuition to the school of crypto. That's right. Yep. So you said that back in 2017, there was only a handful of people, you know, kind of really dedicated in the space and everyone knew everyone from your time super early on to now, is there someone or someone's right that, that you admire uh, and maybe what it is about them? Yeah. I, I thought a lot about this question. Um, 
and I'm, I'm really not a fan of of hero worship. I think I've met enough of my heroes over my lifetime now and, and been disappointed to sort of not fall into that trap. Um, but I will say that, you know, who I admire, I guess, across the space is is really everyone who in earnest is trying to build something new and novel to push the space forward. Um, it takes, I think, incredible, you know, courage to, especially in in sort of a non-docs or a, a rather a, a docs, you know, way, throw your name on something that's that's totally new, maybe re- regulatorily ambiguous. Um, there, there's risk there, uh, and and really put your work on display for for something completely new and novel that may absolutely flop, which which a lot of things do, um, and, and may kind of push the space forward. Um, I have a lot of admiration for for pretty much all the the founders who are really you know not trying to sort of scam or take money off the table, but are but are in earnest trying to to build something to push the space forward. I think that's the you know, the, the best path forward for the, the space generally. Yeah, I think we have, um, I see a lot of that. I see things move so much quicker and so much more ambitiously in this space from what I'm used to. And it's just like, they're trying to like speed run development, like uh, yeah. just like fail fast, fail forward as it were. And that's something... Uh, I like to move really fast. I like to execute. I like to try. I like to ship all of that. And uh, I feel very at home with with those kind of like-minded people here. Yeah. And what's, I think, even unique about the space is the stakes are, are so high, right? Um, you, you can build something that's sort of moderately successful one week and, and it has you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in it over the, over the course of a, a very short amount of time. Um, and that's, that's a lot of pressure. I mean, even, you know, the nouns treasury, we have whatever it is, 50, 60 million, uh, worth of ETH in there. Um, that's, that is, uh, can be a daunting task for a lot of people. And I think coming over from, you know, web two, you don't necessarily have that same degree of risk over there. Yeah. And we'll get into a lot of that, uh, when it comes to nouns, but I do, I do see you talking a lot about MEV and it's something that I'm, I'm interested in learning more about um, admittedly with a lot of things that aren't specifically the things I'm working on um, all these other kind of topics and things uh, on the fringe in crypto. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm having to catch up on, I'm wondering if you could maybe give everyone here a little MEV 101 and maybe some of your broader thoughts on it. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess MEV in a nutshell is um, basically when you can determine or, or influence the ordering of a particular block, that ordering may extract value that would otherwise not have been extracted in a naive ordering of a particular block. And so this dynamic has created sort of a, a zero sum type competition among any all the any and all participants of Ethereum of if you can influence the ordering of a, a block, there's potential you know revenue or profit to pull out of that block that would have not otherwise um, existed. And so um, you know I guess early on in Ethereum's sort of life cycle, 
uh, blocks were ordered by sort of gas price, right? Descending gas price because you want to sort of fill the block up to the gas limit, but then um, you also want to capture sort of as much fees as possible. And so these gas auctions um, were the norm. And what happened was as more economic activity started to manifest on Ethereum, it became more and more profitable for other actors, bots. Um, they're referred to as searchers now is kind of the common vernacular. Um, but they would kind of jack up their gas price to try to get in the front of the block to win these zero-sum games to extract the profit from the block um, by getting their transaction in the front of the block. And, and this evolved into all types of different you know, ordering preferences, whether it be front-running a transaction or back-running a transaction, right? getting your transaction in front of a transaction, behind a transaction, or sandwiching, so getting two transactions on either side of a particular transaction to kind of arb some of the, the, the profit out of it. Um, and this, you know, led to, um, I mean, there's several kind of academic papers written on this topic now, um, but eventually led to the creation of this project called Flashbots, which sort of brought MEV front and center uh, by implementing um, some infrastructure, which mining pools could, uh, deploy, which sort of even the playing field for, for these searchers to extract this MEV. And so in kind of my journey, I guess, across DeFi, um, I ended up landing here in, in probably 2019. Um, and I ran a small MEV team from basically 2019 until 2021, um, where we were kind of playing, you know, some of these games and, and a lot of like long tail fashion, um, so seeking out opportunities, building sort of back-end bots to go uh, and, and play these zero-sum games to try to capture these opportunities. Um, and so it's a very, you know, highly competitive um, yet lucrative and, and fast feedback loop uh, dynamic, which exists in, in Ethereum and, and really all blockchains kind of expose this in some form. It's a very interesting concept to me. And I've been trying to, again, take in as much as I can I do have a couple more specific questions. When people refer to kind of a tip to the miners or or the searchers, is that the same thing as a higher gas price? Yeah, so effectively the same. And it's called bribe. It's called a bribe in the flashbots mm. paradigm. Um, but effectively you're sort of paying the miner directly um to get your transaction where you want, which is typically in the front of a of a block. Um and so what Flashbots did was instead of having, you know, this gas price was very public. And so it's created a dynamic where if I saw you going after an opportunity, I could see your transaction in the public mempool of you going after a particular opportunity that I was also interested in. Well, I could minimally, I could add one way or one way even to my gas price and jump, right, jump line in front of you in the block. And so this created what's known as the uh, PGA's uh which are effectively just gas auctions where these bots would pick off transactions in the public mempool, see their gas price and just continue to increment their gas price back and forth until one of them eventually got included in the block. And so this skewed, you know, the gas price of blocks up pretty high. That's where you would see like the gas estimations would, would get all crazy, um, crazy high because there'd be, you know, maybe just two, of these bots competing in these gas price auctions in the public mempool to try to win a particular 
uh, particular opportunity. And so what Flashbots did was they actually moved this into more of like a private mempool um, setup where it's kind of, it's more of a blind auction, right? So I, I submit um, what my quote bribe or, or my tip would be into the Flashbots um, pool. And I don't know what all the other bribes or tips are. So I have to kind of shoot, you know, shoot first and shoot high to try to capture a particular opportunity. Um, and so this helped with the skewing of the gas price because there wasn't this public uh, mempool competition going on. Hmm. And when you say you look into the mempool and you see opportunities, I guess I'm confused because, because I've heard people say things like that as well. How much of this stuff is just automatically being done by bots and how much, like when you say you ran like a, like a MEV team, how much are you doing maybe more so in the moment and how much is just kind of happening automatically? Like what does running an MEV team even like entail? Yeah. So you have to, you have to automate these because they just happen so quick. And so when I mean monitoring the mempool, I mean, we, we are actually running you know, Geth or parity nodes um, that we had modified to sort of stream mempool data, mempool transactions to, you know, some, some like central program, which would filter them and determine if they were of interest or not. Um, and so you can kind of imagine there's, you need some sort of specialty all across the stack, right? So at the solidity level, you need to be able to implement contracts, which are gas efficient enough that you're not losing on um, sort of paying too much gas to, to get priced out of a particular opportunity. You have to have sort of the main backend logic layer, um, which, you know, you do sort of your calculations, some of your, you know, risk analysis, um, actually, you know, creating the transaction and, and, and sending it or propagating it. Um, and then you have to compete at the, the network layer also. So, if you think about, you know, this global network of Ethereum nodes, each node has a unique view of the mempool and wherever you propagate, you know, wherever the, the source of propagation of a particular transaction going into the public mempool is, it has to be gossiped around the rest of the network. And so you can, right, place nodes uh, sort of in a distributed fashion around this global network, um, which sort of streamline transactions to, to wherever your logic layer is. Um, and sort of beat out the, the, you know, the native gossiping layer of the Ethereum nodes themselves. Um, and so, you know, it used to be that each of those layers, you could sort of find an edge on, um, and some of that's reduced now because the, the barrier has kind of been lowered or commoditized by flashbots. Um, but, you know, the, I think the networking layer used to be like an incredibly sort of competitive edge for for a lot of searchers, but you really need some sort of specialty or expertise in, in each of those parts of the stack. Yeah. How, how big was your team specifically? Or so, just an average team? I'm just curious. Yeah. An average team, I, I'd say they're like one to three, one to four people mm -hmm. usually. Um, and my team was two at the start and we were four at the, at the end. Um, so I think we fell, you know, pretty, pretty well in line with that. Um, and I know there's some more sophisticated teams that are, are building out larger headcounts, but I would say that characterizes sort of the bulk of searching today is is mostly kind of, you know, one to three, one to four individuals. Yeah, I was going to say, why did you stop after only two years? But 
after thinking about it, do I mean, in this space with how fast everything moves, doing something in crypto for two years straight is actually a long time. Yeah, that's right. And in the nature of, I guess, MEV and how the space is developed requires you to kind of throw out a lot of, you know, previous work and, and sort of re re-implement or, or redo it for what the the new world is. So like, you know, 1559 came about that changed the entire gas dynamic for, for all the searchers and they had to kind of adapt to that. Um, and you also just have to be, I mean, it's a 24 seven effort. Like you never know when liquidations are going to land. There's, there's ours flying around all the time opportunities, you know, pop up on the weekends or in the middle of the night or, or whatever it is. So you have to be very on all the time. And I think there's a, a degree of burnout that happens um, if you don't manage that properly. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll still I'll still dabble in it if there's a particular opportunity that, that's that's interesting. I mean, you can use it as sort of a to get best execution um, for for any singular opportunity. Um, but being you know really heads down on that problem set has just become less and less interesting for me over the last last year or so. Yeah. Uh, I have just a couple more questions on on this topic. So when I first found out about it or even heard of the concept, it was described as a bad thing, something to be stopped or or mitigated. But then, you know, it was kind of described as this inevitable thing to to just deal with. But I've also more recently heard takes about it being a good thing, a good thing for the ecosystem, um, a good thing for security. Uh, and can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I definitely agree. It's an inevitability. And there's been some interesting papers come out recently, um, which I guess sort of make a case for why particular types of MEV are, are beneficial. And, and then even some of the Bad types of MEV are also considered beneficial, like sandwiches. And, and um, I think we could, you know, kind of argue that point. But um, I think you can characterize like there's sort of a good good MEV, like um, even things like liquidations. Like you want for a particular money market protocol, um, you want liquidations to happen in, in a quick and timely and, and efficient manner. And so MEV there is, is quite good. Um, but if, you know, you're basically somebody enters an order with like some sort of high, you know, slippage um, parameter and they get, you know, arb to death on it. And then that's like a pretty bad user experience for, for an end Ethereum user, but the mechanic is, is the same, right? It's all, it's all MEV all the way down. Um, and so I guess you can classify, you know, kind of good MEV and bad MEV is, is how people typically describe it. Um, but yeah, I think like in a post merge world, um, with some of the efforts that are happening around, um, you know, Flashbots is rolling out this uh, sort of protocol called PBS, which is uh, stands for Proposer Builder Separation. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to break up all of the actors in this block production supply chain um, to create, you know, sort of a more more fair and censorship resistant um, dynamic for for MEV extraction. Um, but, you know, I guess kind of putting that aside, so something that people are really excited about is, you know, deflationary, uh, a deflationary environment for Ethereum post-merge. And you can kind of think of like inflation is bad in its own right and that it taxes existing users by inflating the, the currency that they're holding. 
strict deflation is also not not very good. Um, it creates this hoarding mentality among holders um, because there's less and less of the asset being sort of you know introduced into the supply. Um, so people want to sort of hold, hoard that asset, and it, it creates rent-seeking behavior. Um, is is what some of the the current thinking is on it. And so what's interesting is in this PBS world where you have, you know, maybe either slight inflationary or slight deflationary mechanics, um, MEV can actually become a primary revenue driver for validators. Um, and you think of like, what what is MEV? You know, really it's, it's sort of a, um, it's a, a function of the economic activity happening on the network itself. So the more economic activity that's happening on Ethereum, the more MEV in theory there is to extract. And therefore, if you can push this MEV into, you know, directly into the validator revenue, MEV starts to uh, set or, or supplement the security budget of Ethereum itself which seems like a much more scalable mechanism um, because your sort of revenue is a function of the economic activity on the network rather than some sort of magic number that you're pulling out for an inflation or deflationary um, parameter. And by security budget, do you mean more, more validators coming to the network? So I you know, I, I think the way that that turns out is um, if everyone is optimizing for MEV profit, that produces more revenue to the end validator set, right? The stake in the validator set. And if that, you know, if that interest or that those returns or that revenue is fairly high, like let's say 10 plus percent of the outstanding stake, that incentivizes more stake to go get locked up on the network. And the more, and you know, in theory for, for proof of stake, so for proof of work, the more mining machines, the more hash power you have, in theory, the more secure the network is. Um, in proof of stake, the more stake you have, in theory, the more secure the network is, particularly if it's sort of distributed among um, various entities, uh, independent entities. And so by using MEV as this driving force for the revenue, you should be able to incentivize more people to buy ETH, stake it, and try to realize some of that interest on their stake, um, which should be a net benefit for the security of the network. Yeah, yeah. That's more so what I meant. More people staking more ETH or more people staking to begin with. And is there any concern with Flashbots being the group leading this effort here? Yeah, I think there's centralization concerns whenever it's sort of one organization or entity, um, you know, driving these efforts. I, I think what's what's beneficial is they've taken, um, or at least attempted to take this credibly neutral stance where they've open sourced, you know, basically all their work. And there's already multiple other um, sort of entities in and around this, this MAV space, like infrastructure providers who uh, have signaled intent to run, you know, pieces of the, the infrastructure that Flashbots will also run. Um, and so I think it's unlikely that validators just, you know, lock onto Flashbots and, and don't choose any other providers for this. Um, we should have, you know, a, a fairly healthy amount of um, 
sort of infrastructure providers willing to play in this this PBS uh, this PBS protocol. Awesome. Thanks for the slight history lesson. I have a lot more to learn, but it's definitely fascinating. Yeah, happy to talk about this all the time. I mean, it's just purely like a, an interest of mine at this point. I like to watch it kind of from afar right now. Totally. So let's let's start talking about Vapate. Let's start talking about punks and when you joined the punk community. Yeah, yeah. So... <clears throat> I mentioned earlier, I was working, you know, at this crypto company in, in the Bay Area. Um, and when CryptoPunks launched, um, you know, very famously, it took like a week for, for all of them to be claimed. But basically, somebody posted in you know our Slack back then, um, hey, look, this is like a pretty interesting project. And in and, and the same sort of vein of, you know, just trying everything and, and putting some capital down and, and really just experimenting. Um, I, you know, I thought it was just a, an interesting sort of novel project. And so after I sort of, we saw those messages and we talked in Slack a little bit about it. Um, I went home that night and just started clicking through, right. All of the, all of the various punks, um, and was like, well, uh, you know, there's, there's some seemingly rare ones and some seemingly like more common ones. And so. I went and looked at the aliens first and they were all, all claimed. So, so straight bits had, had got there, you know, sooner than I had. Um, but then I was clicking, as I was clicking through the apes, um, I noticed there was like four available or something like that. So I went ahead and claimed them. And then I just claimed, you know, a few others, um, just cause they were, they were so cheap. And I was thinking like, well, if, if, you know, some, there's some amount of demand here, um, I'll be able to sort of trade these and, and acquire more ETH, right? That was always the that was always the goal initially with really anything that I've traded is either acquire more Bitcoin or acquire more Ethereum um, or Ether. And so, yeah, my initial thought was like, hey, I'll grab some sort of rare ones, hold on to them. I'll sell some of the other ones, try to like recover my cost base at some point. Um, but you know, overall, I just thought the the project was was really cool and novel and and wanted to you know, was willing to try out basically anything that anybody launched at the time um, in and around Ethereum. And so that was kind of the, the impetus for it, I guess. Well, so it's funny you say that. That's what I was going to say. You seem like someone who just kind of has a yes attitude towards anything, you know, new and even somewhat interesting, which may feel or just seem obvious to you, like, why not? But I feel like there are so many stories like nine out of 10 feels like people back then would see something and everyone has the same. I didn't give him much credit. I didn't really think much of it. Yada, yada. And you seem like someone who maybe has a, has always had a more curious or kind of positive outlook towards any of these things. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, I never, you know, foresaw punks getting to the the level that they are now. Um, and so it certainly wasn't uh I'm going to, you know, I'm going to buy a bunch of these and it's going to, you know, make me a bunch of money in the future. That was definitely not the the thought back then. Um, but yeah, I think it's really hard to not have that attitude. Like, I mean, you think about blockchain, you know, tech in general is, is just over a, a decade old. Um, you know, why, why wouldn't you like, we're running so many crazy experiments in parallel all over the stack. Um, it's just a very hard mentality to not at least 
give some interest or like, you know, give something a chance um, that's, that's new and novel uh, because it's all, this is all new and novel. And so it just seems like um, you're like leaving something on the table by having kind of a pessimistic attitude to, to a lot of new things. Yeah. For the record, I completely agree. So you never knew it was going to get to the point it was now. I, I don't know that I've heard. Yeah. Anyone ever think it was, I think it surprised everyone. So you said you claimed four or five or so. I'm assuming you sold off several, you know, throughout the next couple of months or years. But why why did you hold at least at least uh, Vape? I mean, up until recently, right? But like, how did you hold at least that one throughout all these years? Yeah, yeah. So I claimed I think a dozen overall or so, and four of them were eight were apes. And I very quickly just listed two of the apes for sale because I was like, oh, cool, like a profit, right? Um, and you know, you claim them for for just gas costs, which is like dollars back then, um, single dollars. And so I was like, oh, I'll take you know one two ETH per per ape. Like that's a great ROI. Um, so I kind of very foolishly like put those up for sale very quickly um, and sold them. And then um, I think maybe a few of the other kind of commons I also sold, and it was like pretty happy just to recover my cost basis on them. Um, vape ape or yeah the the vape ape uh piece was one that i was just immediately sort of um i guess connected to in in some way i mean it was just like you know the ape with the vape with a durag and eye mask and it was just so quirky and and weird um I, i immediately started using it as my avatar like across other uh other chats that i was in and nobody knew what it was at the time of course um, but it was always just like, oh, that's, that's like the vape ape. I'm going to like claim that alias, um, which I did very quickly and then just started using it as, as my avatar. And so I'd always, that was always kind of my favorite claim, um, that I did. And so I kept, you know, two apes and a couple of the sort of commons, um, on, uh, on a hardware wallet. And, um, you know, I, I sold some of the other ones for sort of low, low ETH amounts, but I mean, the it was really sort of slow back then. Like nothing was really happening. Um, I think like the claim was, you know, summer of 2017. I think there was like a slight resurgence in 2018. So I like popped in the, the Larva Labs Discord as Vape Vape at the time. Um, and then, you know, really nothing again happened until um, I guess early 2021 was where things like really popped off again. Um, and so I had these in sort of an old hardware wallet just sitting in the back of my uh, my safe and I just hadn't touched them because uh, nothing was really happening with them. I'd recovered my cost basis. So like, I felt good about that. Um, so I was just happy to, to sort of hold the rest of them for the, the time being. Yeah. It's interesting um, because you said you liked it so much. It's interesting how maybe some of the best, you know, decisions you could have made were not even necessarily some, deep-rooted conviction on the future of of nfts but more so like no i'm not selling this just because i like it and i've attributed some identity to it right yeah to, to some degree and, and i'm not i guess i'm not a, a big fan of oh buy it buy it for the art i guess if like you really mean that then, then do that um but uh yeah but you I mean, chose for... to hold that one and like you you didn't sell that one to cover your cost basis you kept that one that's true yeah no yeah. that's that's totally fair um yeah, so so I guess I did, you know, aesthetically j- just like it more. Um, and 
you know, I felt felt like a bit of a, I mean, the the space was so like weird and quirky and, and sort of degenerate even back then. And I felt like this was like the perfect representation of that, of that ethos. Um, and so that was, I think, why I was so attracted to it, you know, when I first initially saw it. Yeah. Was, was everyone back then, even when the community was, you know, infinitely smaller, was anonymity still uh, par for the course? Like, why did you take on that identity versus, you know, just, you know, your, your actual name? Yeah, it was much less so back then, interestingly enough. Um, and I think partially because the, um, you know, the the size of the sort of participants was, was so small. Um, and I really didn't, I didn't have like an active Twitter under Vape Ape. I didn't have like a lot of active like public Discord accounts. It was mainly like inside of my team, you know, uh, Slack or Discord, I would just like sort of use it as my avatar and then my real name, um, and just because I thought it was it was funny. Um, but yeah, I would say anonymity really wasn't um, as prevalent then as it as it was as it is now. Um, it's definitely, I think, maybe NFTs have really accelerated uh, this sort of anon, uh, you know, dynamic. And, and there are a few DeFi projects that launched with with sort of Anon uh, co-founders. Um, I mean, even like Yams, which is, I think, kicked off, you know, DeFi summer, that entire team was doxxed. Um, and they were doing something very, you know, weird and new and novel. Um, but then shortly after, like some other projects like Harvest had completely anonymous teams, but the very like high code quality and stuff like that. Um, and so I would say, you know, sort of post Yams, I think it started becoming more and more uh, prevalent. This may segue pretty well into nouns. Did you create the Twitter account and maybe the more public facing anonymous identity uh, because you were joining the nouns team? No. So I had it earlier than that. It was mostly okay. when, um, when punk started to like just take off. And I would say, I think early 2021, they started going for, um, you know, 10, 10 plus ETH. Um, I did end up going like pulling the hardware wallet out of my safe and I sold uh, the G money ape to G money. And that was like, uh, I think the highest, you know, sale at that time, but that was early 2021. Um, and so really I sort of uh, dusted off the, the avatar and the alias um, and rejoined the punks discord around then just so I could get, you know, kind of a better feel for what was happening. Like why, why these things were starting, why all of a sudden these things were starting to sell for, for a lot more money and people were interested in them and the, the demand was so high. Um, and so, yeah, it was at that point that I kind of, uh, I guess, like reemerged as, as Vape Ape after a couple of years. Oh, okay. And do you have any reflections on the pump community back then? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was really like a lot of exuberance, right? Um, it, it, NFTs, like the concept had been around for a long time, but just really nothing happened with it for for a while. Um, and, you know, I, I knew like the OpenSea guys back in 2017, and they just kind of uh, persisted through through the bear, uh, like the 2018 bear. And it was really unclear, like, what was going to gain traction there. Um, and I think, you know, sort of a mixture of um, both the pandemic and I think the pandemic brought just like a bunch of new entrants that were probably like slightly less technical into the space. And, you know, going zero to one on DeFi is I think much more difficult than going zero to one on NFTs. 
And so that kind of lower barrier to entry, I think attracted a lot of people to NFT trading. And I think the punk community was just rife with people who, um, you know, were both sort of new to the space. It was like a lot of OGs who were kind of trying to, to drop a lot of their bags, it seemed like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would sort of characterize it as sort of exuberant and excited, you know, community that um, there's something happening over here now. Yeah. And then later in 2021 or mid 2021 is, is when nouns came together. So talk to me about the first moment or conversation where you first were presented with the idea. Yes. So, so pre nouns, uh, 4156 and myself, I think just kind of knew each other in passing. Like we are in some of these ape, uh, punk ape chat groups, you know, they like people made special discords for particular holders or channels or, or whatever it was. Um, and so we had, you know, I guess very sort of small surface area um, of connectivity just, just in passing through those groups. Um, but I did respond to his sort of call to action on Twitter initially, um, DM'd him and kind of gave him like a quick rundown of, of hey, um, you know, I built, you know, a bunch of stuff over the years. Um, I'm kind of, I was looking for something new and interesting to work on in particularly the NFT space. Um, Cause you think back like mid 2021, we were sort of in the, you know, in the throes of this 10 K PFP drop, um, uh, you know, iteration. And I, you know, really liken that to kind of the ICO era of NFTs. It's just like, people took a model that worked successfully, you know, for some other sort of early project and they just continually tried to like replicate that and, and push it out. And so I knew something else interesting was going to come of, of, um, you know, some sort of new drop mechanic or, or um, generative NFTs or composable NFTs or, or something, something interesting. Um, and so, yeah, when I, when I consumed his tweet um, I was like, Hey, th this might be, you know, this, this might be interesting. At least, at least I'll learn some stuff. Um, so I ended up reaching out to him, um, after he, after he put that tweet out. That's awesome. So talk to me a bit more about the summer of building nouns. It's something that, you know, is not really discussed that much. We've heard a couple of stories from 4156, but I'm, I'm really curious about once, once he's assembled the team, all, all 10 of you. What is that first week like? Okay, we had this thread with some loose ideas, but like, how are we building this thing? How are we scoping out this project? What's going to happen? Can you kind of run me through that? Yeah, totally. Um, it was a uh, pretty magical uh, time for, for all of us, I would say. Um, so yeah, from when I initially reached out, I think in the next, you know, 24, 48 hours, um, all 10 of us were in the Discord together. And I'm not sure how he chose who to who, who to include there. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden there was sort of 10 of us in there. Um, there were, you know, th three designers and uh, 4156 kind of sits in the middle and, the, and then the rest sort of uh, engineers. And, you know, I think we, we jumped in to the Discord. Um, we sort of used this tweet and just started like, okay, these are the, you know, these are the mechanics we want. Um, how do we design these things? 
Um, and really, I think almost immediately we split off into to two channels, an engineering channel and an art channel. And everyone on the team had sort of the self-awareness to realize where their strengths were for, for a particular project like this and really just like went into their own domain, right? And so all the artists, I mean, the, the art channel was, was absolutely crazy back then because all these artists were just, you know, dropping all kinds of ideas, proof of concepts um, into the art channel. And then on the engineering side, um, we took that tweet series, which described the mechanics we wanted, and we immediately just started designing around it. So, you know, oh, we, we want this auction mechanism. What other auction net mechanisms exist out there? Um, oh, Zora is like pretty close to what we want. Like, let's pull that down and we can modify it to turn it into a, a continuous auction. Um, and then, you know, I think 41, 56 had sort of this high level idea of the mechanics he wanted. But obviously, when you translate those into what can be done, you know, within Ethereum, um, you start to run into like these various trade offs and, and sort of, um, you know, design issues. And so the engineers, were really like the engineering half of the group was really focused on fleshing out um, sort of the edge cases and corner cases of how do we make these mechanics actually work. Um, and, you know, there's even aspects of it, like the settlement of the auction that gave us heartburn, you know, at launch, cause it was it's kind of like a smell, right? You don't have like a strong, uh, a strong mechanism to incentivize somebody to settle an auction. Um, and so there was like, you know, a lot of sort of time and thought put into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we really kind of divvied up into these two groups and started just tackling, you know, one piece of the spec after the other. I think what's really interesting is we did basically all of this asynchronously. So I don't think our first call was, I want to say it was like after a month of us all sort of working in the Discord together. Um, we never got on a voice call. I think we did two voice calls to launch the thing, uh, to launch nouns. Um, and so it was like almost entirely in an asynchronous, um, work stream. What else were you working on at the time? Or I guess asked another way, how much of your time did, did building nouns take up? <laughs> yeah. So I had a full-time job at the time and then. I was also working on a another NFT project, which was never released. Um, that was intended to be built on top of ENS. It was sort of like an ENS subdomain project. Um, never released that. I got super excited about nouns, and I actually dropped all the other all the other stuff I was working on to work on nouns. That's awesome. At what point did that happen? As in, like that kind of excitement or realization that you know this could be great i mean for you to like free up your time and 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 drop your responsibilities like that yeah i think um i think well i knew some of the members on the team and then getting to know some of the other some of the other members on the team um it just felt like i mean this is just where i wanted to, to spend my time is like the other project i can always pick up you know at a later date um like let's let's sort of pursue this in, in earnest and, and, um, you know, really, really try to make this a uh, success. And so, um, I didn't have any like strong attachment to the other stuff that I was working on. Um, and I was kind of, I was working on it with a, with a small team. So, so it was a little bit more isolated. Um, but you had this, you know, uh, this 
sort of entity or, or, or person in, in 4156 who uh, has this like large following. He, he's clearly kind of a thought leader in the space. Um, and then you had just this, this incredible talent around. And so, you know, I think Dom Hoffman is, is, is well known in the space. Um, but uh, I, I'd known E-Boy sort of uh, fr- from a distance, like I, I was familiar with some of his work. Um, and it just felt like a really, I guess, unique opportunity to work with, with just some really stellar people that um, made me kind of put everything else I was working on by the wayside and really focus on this. Yeah, I was wondering if you could say more about working with Dom. Was was he always going to kind of just be around for the building of it? Because, you know, I mean, we all know how busy he is and all of his responsibilities. Yeah, early on, it was, um, it was re- pretty unknown what any of our... Uh, expectations on each other's commitments were at the time. Like it was nothing, it was nothing that we set up front. It was just kind of like, um, you know, once we land, landed on the Nounder reward, we kind of like just split that up across the 10 of us initially. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, Dom was like super active back then, um, probably for similar reasons. It was like new and exciting um, project. And he had a lot of, um, you know, experience doing on-chain art with uh, Blitmap. And so we wanted to kind of, uh, you know, take his learnings from that and and implement those into nouns. Um, And so he was kind of, you know, I'd say like sort of the sort of sage type, you know, kind of gray beard guy in the room who's like helping us along um, with some of those like implementation details. Um, But it really wasn't clear what everyone's commitment was post-launch to the project. but we, you know, we ended up kind of figuring it out. And I think everyone's in a, in a happy place now with, with where things are. Yeah. Something that's always struck me, and it may just be an outsider's perspective, but is, is, is the team specifically. My perception is that at least the dev team seems very well balanced. And you all didn't know each other. Some people, I mean, even you, came randomly from a tweet thread and and i remember 4156 himself was saying that it i'm sure there was some scrutiny but he really was taking on people who were maybe most ambitious and reached out first as kind of his signal of who to include i'm wondering if you could speak to the maybe the dev team specifically and and kind of some reflections on that because also when the project came out i just remember the CTO of of Artifact, who had this big giant spreadsheet, who was like rating and roasting different smart contracts from like A to F or whatever about security or optimization, etc. And Nouns is on there has the only A double plus, like the highest rated, like he could not compliment it enough. And I think that's just kind of, you know, a nod to the dev team. Uh, and it's just it's just always been so interesting how this async project with anonymous people comes together kind of on a whim and it seems so well balanced and at such a high like caliber. Yeah. So, so I had worked with uh, Salamander and Dev Carrot in some capacity before. And so we came in, you know, I mean, that's, that's three of the the five kind of devs on the team. We already knew we had very sort of complementary skills because we had, we had done some other, um, sort of nights and weekends stuff together. Um, 
before. And then Seneca is obviously, you know, strong sort of front end developer as well. Um, and in 999 kind of, I think also supplements both, both myself and, and Salamander to, to some degree. And so, yeah, I mean, it just came in as like, we had sort of all parts of the stack, um, sort of covered and, and that was partially because I, I knew, you know, some of the team coming in. Um, and so that was, that was super helpful. I, I will say like on the sort of the code quality and the, the design of the smart contracts themselves, um, full credit to, to Salamander. Um, I mean, that, that dude is, is just an absolutely world-class, um, solidity engineer. Um, you know, I think a few of us sort of poked around I think I was the one who initially forked the Zora contract and, and I done some work on it. Um, but he came through and, and really just made everything like so coherent, well-documented, um, just like a complete work of art of a, of a code base. Um, and so, you know, that, that a plus plus rating is, is solely, solely attributed to, to Salamander. Yeah. That's fascinating because I am learning Solidity. I by no means am, am qualified to kind of speak on it, but anytime anyone has has spoken about Salamander's knowledge or level, it just it it seems to be the exact same type of opinion. Like he's the best. Yeah. Yeah, just just an absolutely I mean, incredible human generally, but but absolutely just amazing engineer, I would say. One of the best I've worked with in my career, certainly. That's awesome. Okay, so we're a year into nouns. We're starting year two. Do you have any main takeaways on nouns this year? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's completely exceeded my expectations. Um, it, I would say we we went into launching this thing, you know, eyes wide open that this is uh, a pretty crazy experiment with, you know, especially initially people kind of, I think, shook off the economics around the, the continuous auction and, and the sort of mimetic infinite supply um, dynamic. And we really didn't know, you know, what, what the outcome would be. And so to see just the community that's like risen up around this, the, the quality of proposals and teams proposing, um, the engagement from, from all the nouners, um, it's, it's been just a totally wild, wild and crazy ride from, from, you know, I guess what we thought, um, our, our expectation coming in, I guess. Yeah. Do you have a nouns project or accomplishment from this past year that maybe you're most proud of just from a, from nouns's point of view, but that you weren't involved in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe I was adjacently involved, involved, but I think getting people, particularly like you and some of the other um, kind of core contributors who are not founders that have, you know, dropped, you know, many other things in their career and lives to work on this. Um, I think that's something I'm like pretty proud of in terms of uh, building some piece of infrastructure that can support bringing outside contributors in. And having it, having this project be interesting enough for outside contributors to want to come and work on this full time, um, you know, I, I think you could point to like many proposals and and sort of you know the Super Bowl commercial and stuff is like, oh, those are like pretty epic moments in the nouns, um, the nouns history or nouns lore so far. 
Um, but I, I don't think it would be nearly as strong without sort of the, you know, the, the core contribution of outside members who have come in and, and really attached themselves to the project. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, there's, there's a sense of pride of, of having built something maybe even unintentionally that that was, you know, the end result and, and hopefully we can continue to, to grow that dynamic as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. Um, I mean, it's an interesting parallel because you yourself, when you were working on nouns, you had other things that you dropped for nouns and yeah, I, I guess creating something that, you know, someone like me or, or whoever would like quit their job and, and, uh, well, funny enough, I didn't even consider this till now I was in a, I had started a, uh, masters of computer science program, uh, the same, the same month that I, or I was a month in, uh, to when I found out about nouns and I actually dropped out of the program <laughs> to, to give more time to nouns. I mean, I was really early into it, but it was something I was trying to do. And then, uh, I was also new to crypto, but it was, a obviously, I don't know that anyone really knew where nouns would go or could go. But there was something, at least to me, once I kind of uh, grokked the basics, that was just so obvious. And uh, for me, I was just like, I need to just be around this thing. <laughs> and why am I in grad school? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so cool to hear. Um, and I guess remains to be seen if it was the, the best decision <laughs> uh, for, for all of us so far. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Enjoying I mean, the ride. Totally. Yeah. I think there's something like really special happening here and, and, um, you know, sometimes, yeah, things, things happen that you don't anticipate. And, um, I mean, just to, to have, you know, something that you found that you had enough conviction on to sort of reorient your, your career and your life, um, which I've done, you know, many times for, for other, other projects over the years. I think that that's like, there's something really special about that. Yeah. So as we're looking into this second year, um, we've done a lot, we've tried a lot, and I think we're seeing bigger, more ambitious things already beginning to happen. But I'm wondering what are people maybe still not considering or underestimating when it comes to nouns? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the sort of uh community dynamic along with the treasury is still somewhat underappreciated i think you could look to other analogs um within the space so you got um sort of these i, I would say like you know big um kind of more more legacy architected companies like yuga and, and you know like even pudgy penguins is going this way of like assigning a ceo um which seems to be sort of trying to blend um this new crypto native you know world with kind of existing organizational um infrastructure and i think uh maybe an under um sort of an underrated aspect of nouns is just how community driven all of the initiatives are and I think it remains to be seen if, if that's like actually net, you know, net beneficial or net valuable to the project. Um, 
But I think it's a, a dynamic that's often overlooked is there really is no like top-down control, right? I think we have kind of a sort of spiritual leadership in a sense by the Nounders. Um, but I mean, we've been outvoted on proposals, right? I mean, how many things has Yuga been outvoted on or, or you know, another sort of central um, top-down entity for, for one of these other projects been outvoted on? Um, and so I think that that, new that new dynamic is something that's that's really going to be really interesting to watch evolve and is probably um a bit understated right now across the the broader nft community yeah on that note of of ceos and leadership i asked 4156 this how do you think about as a founder your involvement when to speak up when to let the experiment run does the dow grow stronger when forced to make its own decisions. Yeah, so so we were very cautious to try to force our hand on things in the in the first year. Um we you know we really we really did like want it to be a community driven um project and and didn't want you know nounders to be sort of a, a central force in decision making. And so I think there are a lot of things that we let play out early on. Um just to see, just to run the experiment, you know? Um, I think now you can, and you can look at sort of how like the delegations and stuff had shaked out. Um, I think we just recently became another, like the largest voting block again, but for several months this year, we, we were not the largest voting block. Um, There's uh, some delegates who had, um, or I think a, a particular delegate who had a, a larger voting block than we did. Um, and so as I guess now it's like the supply increases, there's more you know, more voices in the room. Um, we've, I think, opened up to being more vocal about our own personal opinions because it feels like um, we're a little bit on a more even even playing field with with other um, sort of large, large voting blocks. Um, really, I think my, the way I view my role is I'm here to help the DAO execute on what it wants to execute on. Um, kind of regardless of what I think about what it's executing on in my personal, my sort of personal opinion. Um, you know, I understand the the mechanics, particularly at the, you know, the Ethereum layer um, quite well. I, I've, I've done treasury management in, in other capacities in my career. And so I've, you know, helped set up some of the sort of processes and infrastructure to, to do some of those things. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I'll continue to sort of voice my opinion, particularly when, there's certain traps that I feel like we're going to fall into as a, as an organization, um, but willing to be, you know, outvoted on, on those particular items. And, and at the end of the day, um, even if I'm outvoted on something I disagree with, I think it's still my responsibility to help the DAO, you know, execute that particular thing. Yeah. I think, I think the founding team is so diverse that, you know, sometimes it doesn't even feel like, it's the nounders imposing some opinion, you know, because you, like you said, are you specifically chime in if there's uh, something, some decision or some clarification when it comes to treasury management or maybe some technical challenge. So it really just feels like it's vape, vape any other member um, just helping versus like some top down, you know, all knowing nounder opinion. Yeah, that's that's intentional. We definitely within the Nounder group ourselves, and I mean we are still a group, like we are, I guess, a DAO in, in some sense, right? We have 
uh, a four of eight, I think, multi-sig, um, where all the sort of nounder rewards go into. And so we have to govern internally as well. Um, but we've been, I think, you know, really encouraging of everyone to um, speak up and, and speak speak their mind on things. And, and we don't always agree as a group on on things either. Um, and that's kind of part of the it's part of the process here, I think, is is finding those points of conflict and contention and, you know, really working them out. And um, sometimes you win and sometimes you don't, but, you know, you can't be, can't be a sore loser and sort of pack up and go home. You still have to, you know, there's still, I guess, like more innings to to bat, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, governing is, is, is not easy. Um, but on that note, as, as we're looking towards the second year, uh, when it comes to nouns governance, and I know we're running different prop house experiments to make, whether it be delegation or proposal clarity or voting in general, a better experience. In your personal opinion, what are some things that the the DAO at large needs to get done or even try in this next year to become more resilient? Yeah, I think the pre-proposal process is still pretty tough. And, and this may be a function of just daily engagement by the nouners. Like, you know, a lot of the, it's no secret that a lot of nouners are, are sort of, um, you know, it's, I think there's like a meme around just like whale, people, whales buying the stuff or funds buying, buying nouns. Um, but we do have like a pretty engaged community um, despite that. But, but I think it's hard to, hard to get everyone's attention on every, you know, proposal idea that's coming through. And so, then if there's like no dissent, people take that as, um, you know, a blessing and they continue to push it through. And then once it gets, you know, on chain or very close to going on chain, then all the dissent comes out because that's the forcing function to everyone paying attention. Um, and so I think that's a very, that's a very tough problem to solve. I think it's going to continue to be a tough problem to solve because it's not totally clear on how, um, how you get everyone's attention on everything. And as, Right as the DAO scales up, the Treasury scales up, the number of proposals will inevitably scale up as well. Um, and so that problem is probably going to get worse and not better. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a super tough, tough problem to solve. Is just around, and we see it across other DAOs too. Is just around, you know, voter engagement generally. But I think particularly in the the pre proposal process, um, you're just it's possible to to kind of upset people because they didn't get some sort of attention that that they feel like they deserve before you know taking an idea to to the next stage or like trying to to get funding for it or, or something like that. Yeah, was this something early on the team talked about or tried to solve for? I, I would say um, mostly no. Um, we. We tried to implement other tools. So like our discourse is where a lot of pre-proposal ideas end up landing. Um, and we sort of implemented that on the fly as as a lot of people, as like things are just getting lost in Discord. Um, and so we've done, I guess, some patchwork to try to, to solve this, um, but it's not, it's not totally like we have the form now that everyone has access to. Um, you know, I guess, is there, are there other more digestible ways to, to get people involved? Um, I think it's, it's some, like, could partially be a, a UX problem, but I think ultimately it's an attention, attention problem. Um, and it's pretty hard to, to solve for. Um, so yeah, I would say 
there hasn't been any like serious effort um, behind it outside of introducing a form where we can kind of better, uh, you know, track these things in an asynchronous fashion without them just getting buried in Discord instantly. Um, but I think there's a lot more to improve there. Yeah. What are your thoughts in general about delegation? Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. So I think it's, it's net beneficial. I think you have to have these sort of delegation systems in place, um, but it creates a dynamic where you're able to remove the financial component from the voting component. And, you know, we've really embraced that experiment with, with stuff like Nounsel, um, where they own no nouns, but they have a, a multi-sig where they've been delegated, you know, I think tens of nouns. Um, and so I think there's a sort of a hypothesis that super engaged community members will vote in the best interest of the community. But I think it's interesting when you remove the financial dynamic from it, where those voices have no financial interest in um, in voting, where right other nouners who hold one or more nouns and then also are very active um, may act in a way to sort of protect their investment um, a little bit a little bit more. Um, but unknown if that's like a net benefit or not to the DAO itself. Um, but it's certainly an interesting experiment to run, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I know it's something that DAOs, and, I mean, it's, it's it's not a problem unique to nouns, um, but especially as, as membership, you know, keeps growing every day. Do you solve for, uh, you, you know, do you increase delegation or do you solve for, uh, maybe, you know, maybe actual member voter apathy uh, versus delegates i don't know yeah and i mean we've seen the rise of sort of these protocol politicians is, is the term i use for them um but it's these high profile people who sit across multiple DAOs. they have large delegations um attributed to them some of them take you know compensation for being in such a role um but it's not so clear that they're necessarily qualified to vote on on many of the things or they have the expertise to, to vote on many of the proposals. I think nouns is unique where um, you're not tweaking, you know, uh, high risk uh, variables within some sort of DeFi protocol. I mean, it, it's, it is stuff like, do you want to fund, you know, um, this media group or, or like a particular one-off project or I think Prop House has done very well um, where nouns can sort of bifurcate from a individual proposal to just like funding prop house and then kind of letting the community go crazy with, with funding at smaller amounts there. Um, all of those are, are pretty unique to nouns. Um, and so maybe this model is, is more fitting for nouns than sort of the, the protocol politician uh, model that's emerging across other uh, DeFi DAOs. I have not heard the term protocol politicians until now. It's not mine. It's definitely somebody else's. But, yeah. Um, I, I quite like that framing. Yeah. I'm wondering if uh, you could speak to Prop House a little bit, seeing as you recently joined the team. Maybe maybe some beliefs you have in the project or where it can go or, or why you are putting some time into the next step for Prop House. Yeah. So, you know, earlier this year, I think Seneca pitched this idea in our weekly Nounder call. Um, 
and he might have even brought it up sort of multiple weeks in a row and it didn't really click for me um until one of the the later meetings um but he's taken and this is totally his brainchild as well and, and huge props to him for for coming up with this mechanic um but he's really taken sort of the noun auction uh continuous auction mechanism and applied it to um you know funding um basically like a funding mechanism um and you know uh, he he wanted to go run this experiment everyone was like super supportive hey go 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 run this experiment. I think he spent, you know, a lot of time on it to get it to sort of its MVP state. Um, and then just, uh, you know, talking with him and, and seeing the proposals come through and seeing just it's, I think it's found like product market fit is, is really what I think. Um, and so, you know, he was looking for other people to sort of help, help him take it to the next level. Um, and so I started talking to him about it and I think sort of the, the major insight for me is that every prop house is a DAO in some sense. Um, and you can sort of either, you know, sort of uh, back, it's like backwards compatible to existing DAOs. And I think in the future, you could even bootstrap DAOs with via prop houses as well. Um, and it's, and it's really like, you can think of sort of a, a hierarchy of, of treasury and risk where at the top you have, you know, kind of a main DAO treasury. It has very sort of strict rules around governing proposals and, you know, long turnaround times. And you want to give everyone a chance to vote and and, and veto or, or make sure something isn't malicious. Um, Prop House is sort of a layer underneath that where you can deploy small amounts of capital, uh, I think more fearlessly because it is small amounts of capital, at least right now. Um, and, take your bring your community with you to vote on you know basically community interested initiatives um and, and you know you could even combine sort of two DAOs together and deploy a, a slug of capital um and so the more i kind of went down this like mind maze of what does it mean for sort of these like sub DAOs in a sense to to have these small amounts of working capital um in a really community driven way became just I guess infinitely interesting to me and and you're in the you're in the discord when I first joined and I was just like brain dumping all of my um all my thoughts on it um in the discord at the time and coming to these these various revelations um but I think things get really interesting when um you know it's obviously eth right now but you can imagine um there's you know what we'll, we'll have I think like fractional nouns or, or like noun shards or something like that is, is a project that's that's being worked on by, you know, I think now it was formerly the, the fractional art team and now the, the Tessera team. Um, but, you know, being able to pay contributors and stuff like noun fractions to the point where they can eventually like claim a, a full noun. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this, this is just a really interesting evolution in public funding and you can you can look at other experiments or, or projects like like Gitcoin and and some of these others, which I think take a much more traditional model. Um, this feels much more sort of crypto native, for lack of a better term, uh, way to do things. And so I think there's like a lot of interesting um, use cases that are probably somewhat ephemeral or conceptual now um, that I think we could actually see in the next six months um, start to materialize. Yeah, I've pretty much redirected all of my time and efforts 
to helping build prop house it's an intoxicating idea and yeah i have a lot of hope for for where it goes same yeah it's been really fun really fun to work on and you know of course we got salamander on the team and he's building out the protocol so um i expect nothing but but uh, sort of <laughs> stellar uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it really um it really seems like one of the more if not in my opinion the most exciting thing to come out of nouns i think so far yeah and in, in terms of like development projects um we yeah i think we've been really um i think we're really good about funding experiments but the the horsepower behind prop house it feels like a really like intentional move um really driven by seneca to to get some you know really good um some good talent over here and and, and really do this in uh you know, professional and, and sort of buttoned up way. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think there's like a lot of exciting work happening over there, particularly uh, the intersection of uh, L2s and L1. Um, and I won't say too much more than that, just because I don't want to, don't want to spoil the surprise, but, but there's some cool stuff happening over there. Yeah. Very excited about it. Uh, so in wrapping up, I just have a couple more questions. Uh for everyone to kind of think about and consider, but uh, in your opinion, what is the most obvious opportunity to build on or with nouns that we just haven't even seen yet? Yeah. Um, I think one aspect that I'm really interested in is somebody doing something interesting with the on-chain art and so we saw an early attempt, I think it was called fast food nouns or something like that, um, where they had these composable elements where you could like add a McDonald's hat or, or whatever, like the M hat, red hat to your to your noun. Um, and they were doing that all on chain. Um, I think that was pretty early, like the community wasn't very big back then, but it was like a, a pretty novel concept. Um, I think there's something like interesting to do in and around uh, using the on-chain art and introducing some sort of composable features there. Um, that would be a, a massive differentiator to um, some of the other, you know, nouns, um, ex extensions that we've seen. Yeah. Shout out Jake Allen. I remember that early on, uh, fast food nouns. Yeah. That stands out as like one of the more interesting, um, you know, obviously we had like nouns builder coming out. I think that's like super cool, but it's, it's also kind of, like an obvious path, right, is, is sort of fork, forking the nouns auction mechanism and, you know, slightly changing some variables and, and sort of rolling it out that way. Totally. Um, I think there's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in the nuance, right, and, and the novelty of, of new solutions. And so it seems like, yeah, I mean, finding some way to play into the fact that we've exposed all of this art on chain in, in sort of like an API way um is is rather untapped right now yeah well that's a good place to end things i really appreciate this conversation we touched on on everything i really enjoyed your path to crypto all of the history you brought us through even the mev 101 and then everything that you've worked on for nouns and and what's to come i really appreciate the time and you know being a part of nouns and helping create it yeah. Thank you for hosting. I mean, this conversation was super fun. Hope we can do it again. Definitely. All right. Sounds good. Talk soon.